Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. I listen for your footsteps coming up the drive. Listen for your footsteps, but they don't arrive. Waiting for you, not dear, on my old front door. I don't hear it. Does it mean you don't love me anymore? On the 12th of July 1968, the Beatles dusted off Ringo's first ever solo composition and added a bit more country and western flavour to it through the overdubbing of a violin part onto Take 7. The song was now known by its proper title, Don't Pass Me By, rather than This Is Some Kind Of Friendly, which it had been temporarily named. The entrance of the violin play into Studio 2 that night must have come as a surprise to the Beatles. His name? Jack Fallon. To most, not a well-known name in the Beatles story. But Fallon was also a music promoter and had booked the Beatles for their very first professional gig in the south of England on the 31st of March 1962, roughly 10 weeks before their audition with EMI in this very studio. Ticking on the mantel shelf. See the hand 
an early mono remix of Take 7 of Don't Pass Me By, now almost complete with country fiddle, Paul's bass and Ringo counting out the beats to the break, while inadvertently shaking some sleigh bells. The song would need to wait until the 22nd of July to be completed. With the 12th of July and the afternoon of the 15th devoted to adding the finishing touches to Obladi Oblada and Revolution, the evening session of the 15th saw the introduction of another of John's songs, begun at home in early 1968 and finished off in India. The king of Marigold was in the kitchen cooking breakfast for the queen. The queen was in the parlor playing piano for the children of the king. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. The king was in the garden picking flowers for a friend who came to play. Queen was in the playroom painting pictures for the children's holiday. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. The Duchess of Kikordi always smiling and arriving late for tea. Duke was having problems with a message at the local Burden Bee. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. At 12 o'clock, a meeting round the table for a seance in the dark. With voices out of nowhere Put on specially by the children for a love Cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry, cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry, baby, cry when official Beatles biographer Hunter Davies was interviewing and researching for his book, John had told him that he had an idea for the song, and that like Good Morning, Good Morning, the idea had been sparked by an advert of some sort. Cry, baby, cry, make your mother buy. Folk icon and fellow Rishikesh resident Donovan remembers John working on the song in India and that his own musical style might have influenced John on this number. Also based partly on the nursery rhyme Sing a Song of Sixpence, the song once again gave John plenty of scope to play with words and imagery. On the evening of the 15th of July, Approximately 30 unnumbered rehearsal takes were recorded. Now start again. Samalina, Samalina, pilchard, greens not pie, all mixed together with a dead dog's eye. One, two, three, four. 
Recording proper of Cry Baby Cry began the next evening, with 10 takes committed to tape. Let's listen in as the session begins. Cry baby cry, make him other side. kitchen cooking breakfast for the queen the queen was in the parlor playing piano for the children of the king cry baby cry make your mother sigh she's old enough to know better so cry baby cry the king was in the garden Picking flowers for a friend who came to play The queen was in the playroom Painting pictures for the children's holiday 
cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry The Duchess of Kikodi Always smiling and arriving Late for tea The Duke was having problems With a message at the local bird and bee Cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry At 12 o'clock a meeting Round the table for a seance In the dark With voices out of nowhere Put on specially by the children For a laugh Cry, baby, cry Make him up She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry Cry, baby, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better So cry, baby, cry Cry, cry, cry Make your mother sigh She's old enough to know better To cry, baby, cry Take one of Cry, Baby, Cry Sounding much more like the released version Than the previous night's rehearsal After an hour's break, the Beatles returned to Studio 2 to add John's piano track and some harmonium played by George Martin. While this session may not have been remarkable for what was put on tape, it was momentous for a different reason. Recording engineer Jeff Emmerich explains. Um, And there was a sense of anger there. And we never quite figured out why until until, a few weeks later certain things started to come out in the press about what had happened in India with Maharishi and all the rest of it, you know. And so also, of course, they're they're forming the Apple company at that time. There's a lot of business problems happening, I guess. Um, But when we started to record, there was the, the sense of anger was the fact they turned all the guitar amps up louder than they'd ever been before. I couldn't get the separation from the drums and the guitars because there was too much guitars linking onto the drums. Um, and it was a bit, a bit of a mess and a bit of a nightmare as far as I was concerned. And I think I got into like the 11th track and John had been pretty nasty to me, making nasty remarks, which wasn't really, it was something that happened in his life at that time and he took the anger out on me, I guess, right? So they were gradually, like John was in number three studio and Harrison was in number one studio and Paul was in number two studio. The maintenance engineers were doing some of the engineering. And I, I, it came to a head and it was on a Tuesday and I said to George Martin, I said, look, I, I can't take this anymore and I'm going to leave. He said, well, you can't leave. He said, I said, well, I'm going to leave today. He said, well, leave on Friday. I said, no way, you know. So anyway, we went up to the manager's office and obviously it was pointed out that Jeff's going to leave, you know, this afternoon. And so anyway, they knew something was happening because they were in the, in the studio and George Martin and I were up in the control room with the manager and they were trying to get our attention. Anyway, they went down the stairs into number two and said, look, I'm leaving. I, I can't handle this anymore. So John said, well, it's not you, Jeff, it's this, meaning the comp can be confined into number two Abbey Road, which was like bricks on the wall, stuff hanging down the wall, industrial lights, there's no nice seats, there's no colour lighting anywhere, 
and they've like been incarcerated in this place forever. So John said, well, it's not you, it's this. And then and I was sort of thinking, well, okay, you know, you, I brought you, you, you're actually telling me this for the first time. And then he made a nasty remark to, to Paul about the Sgt. Pepper album. And I thought, well, because he always assumed it was Paul's album, and he hated it, right? And I thought, no, enough's enough. If you're going to say that to Paul about Sergeant Pepper, I'm leaving. And I left, which was, which was a kick up the arse to them because George Martin then said to me, he said, you know, Jeff, if I wasn't going on holiday in two weeks' time, I would have done exactly what you've just done and walked out. But he had an out on it, you know. They were kind of disintegrating, and um, they wanted to record their own songs independently at the same time. Virtually impossible. So I will be perhaps working with Paul in one studio, John will be working out his ideas in another, and George will be with Chris Thomas in another one. And that was a strange time, and it kind of eroded the, the way we used to work. The White Album was we were all in the middle of the sort of psychedelic thing, or just coming out of it or whatever, but it was weird, you know, I mean... I mean, never before have we recorded with, like, beds in the studio and kind of people visiting for hours on end and business meetings and all of this. And there was a lot of friction during that album. Because I think White Album was like the weirdest period because we were about to break up, you know, and that was just tense in itself. Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich, who had been recording with the band since 1962 and was such a pivotal player in the sessions for Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, wouldn't work with the Beatles again until the Abbey Road album in mid-1969. Once upon a time, or maybe twice, there was an unearthly paradise called Pepperland. Eighty thousand leagues beneath the sea it lay. There was no session on the 17th of July, as all four Beatles attended the world premiere of Yellow Submarine at the London Pavilion. The Beatles were back at work in Studio 2 the next afternoon, resuming work on Cry Baby Cry by adding a new vocal from John, backing vocals, a new harmonium track, tambourine and sound effects. The evening session saw Paul introduce a song which had been unofficially aired during the recordings for Blackbird, more than a month earlier. In the new spirit of recording whatever happened at any given time, three extended takes of Helter Skelter were recorded on the evening of the 18th of July. Strap yourselves in, listeners. It's going to be a long ride. Take two. 
the 12 and a half minute take two of the original version of Helter Skelter. Take one had lasted just over 10 and a half minutes, while take three famously clocked in at a whopping 27 minutes and 11 seconds, the longest ever Beatles recording. Featuring Paul and George on electric guitar, John on bass, and of course Ringo on drums, live tape echo was applied to the vocal track. Although the engineers were running the session tape at 15 inches per second, giving them roughly 30 minutes of recording time, the second tape used to provide the echo in the Beatles' headphones was running at twice that rate, 30 inches per second, therefore only allowing for 15 minutes of tape echo to be applied. Engineers Ken Scott and Richard Lush were a little bit flustered in trying to work out how to keep it all running, knowing that the Beatles would notice the echo disappearing out of their headphones. Finally, they made the call to stop the tape echo and rewind the tape at high speed, which could clearly be heard in the headphones on the studio floor. But instead of getting annoyed, Paul simply dropped into a vocal improvisation based around the spooling sound. The song would be shelved until September. The next day saw another of John's songs introduced into the studio, this one having perhaps the most direct link to the Beatles' time in India. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. You made a fool of everyone. That's about Maharishi. You know? I, was, I copped out and wouldn't write Maharishi, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. 
Now it can be told, <laughs> fab listeners. Is it right? How fast, John? Uh, however you like, you know, feel it. Sexy Sadie, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. Sexy Sadie, oh, it done. Sexy Sadie, you broke the rule. You laid it down for all to see. You laid it down for all to see. Sexy Sadie, oh, you broke the rule. Sunny day, the world is waiting for a lover. She came along to turn on everyone. Oh, sexy Sadie, the greatest of them all. Sexy Sadie. Beatles' home demo of Sexy Sadie and the very first of 21 takes of the song recorded on the evening of the 19th of July 1968. Again, the take-it-as-it-comes approach to recording was adopted and the session tapes reveal, amongst other things, a six-minute jam of the Gershwin standard Summertime and this less-than-gracious ditty about their now-deceased manager and his brother. What about Brian Sam, 
As the Beatles gathered to listen back to what they had recorded, their conversations were also captured on tape, including some constructive criticism from the now ever-present Yoko Ono.
Yeah, well, we're going to listen to it all. And all that talking. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, each Beatle takes centre stage as the White Album sessions continue. Until next time, 